So, last week we did nostalgia, regret, hopes, and fears. I don't ever want to talk about it again. I hope you all are satisfied too. It was tough going. So, we're at number 295, Conversations with Yogananda. The Master remarked to me, I have been just like a watchdog here, keeping the men and women separate. Or oh, we're into another one of these monastic ones again. Okay. I have been just like a watchdog here, keeping the men and women separate. Even so, as soon as I am out of things a little, I find the mixing begins. When I leave this body, the men and women must live in separate colonies. He often commented further, that is why Buddhism failed in India. Corruption entered because the monks and nuns lived in too close association with one another. Yeah, wowie zowie. This is another one of those that Swami said, this is what he said, so I'm going to put it in. You know, the whole question of when Master was alive, the monks and nuns all shared the property at Mount Washington, and Swamiji was in charge of the monks, and the, the women had most of the rooms upstairs, and the men lived in the basement. Swami describes this all in the path. And he said that Master repeatedly told him that when... After he died, he wanted the monks to have their own monastery in a separate place. Apparently, he never said that to any of the women who were in charge. He only said it to Swami. These are many of the confusing things that happened after Master died with Swami in relation to all the other women, the women who were all in charge. So after Master died, Swami was keen on doing what he said and trying to move the monks to another location because... He had, Master had never made that point to the women. They thought, having being in the habit of ascribing to Swami ulterior motives, that he wanted to move them away from Mount Washington so that he could have more control over them and that they would be less influenced by the rest of the board. And they, they were inclined not to believe anything that Swami alone had been told. They were inclined to believe only what they had been told. I mean, Swami forever wondered why didn't he... Why didn't Master tell them if it was so important? But eventually, um, and Swami tells all this story in the path and maybe in a place called Ananda too, eventually money was gathered and they were, they did build a monastery, or at least a, a monastic building. I think it's still close to the same location. Now my mind's a little blank. Where is it? Below Mount Washington. It, it's, it's below Mount Washington, so it's really enough separated. And the monks lived also at Lake Shrine. Um, here, but here's, an, just, here's a very interesting, just a sidelight to this, which I found going through all my notes. In some year, it would have been in the 2000s, but I don't know when, Swami was, his health was poor and everyone felt he needed a vacation and so they called us in America and asked if we would go with him to, to the, the Sunshine Coast in Spain. Costa del Sol, I suppose it's called, right? And so we, we went and spent a week with him there. And uh, somehow in the course of that, he was running a lot of these stories. And he, he was talking to us about the whole issue of the monastery and the misunderstanding. And David said to him the obvious question, why didn't he tell the nuns that? And Swami, for some reason, took that very seriously. And it's like he didn't really have an answer and he couldn't really figure out why Master had never told them. And so very odd uh, Swami was flying business class and we were flying coach and uh, in the middle of the flight Swami walks back to where we're sitting 
and he has this radiant look on his face. He says, because it wasn't really about the monks, Master was telling me that I was going to have to live separate. And he said that's why he said it, and that's why he never told them. It wasn't about them, it was just about me. He just wanted me to know that he knew what was going to come. Isn't that interesting? I mean, that happened like, you know, I don't know, within the last ten years. But after all those years and all those times. But the other, there's so many aspects to that story that I love, not the least of which is that Swamiji never became convinced that he'd, he'd plunged, uh, plumbed the depths of any question. You know, because you're new, excuse me, I mean, Swami Kriyananda was Master's direct disciple, I'm not sure how much you know. But uh, he, never, he was never arrogant, you know, about, of course, I understand. He was never dismissive. When that question was asked him, he just took it like, well, that's a very good question and I don't have an answer for it. Why don't I have an answer for that question? So then that was why he could always keep finding out something new. And, you know, it was the whole issue of <clears throat> the way he was treated by his guru bhais was a constant theme that he was always having to put energy into in order to be comfortable with. The fact that his perception of Master's work differed from their perception of it in so many fundamental ways. He was confident in what he was doing, but he was always open to the fact that he might be wrong. You know, so it just, there was so much humility in the way he approached it. So he was always showing us what it really means to be a disciple, which is you never get your mind fixed. Because once you get your mind fixed, I mean, how can you learn any more? That doesn't mean, but it's, it's paradoxically, or I should say to balance that, you don't live in a state of doubt either. Um, you're just perfectly confident until you've been shown something else. Let me phrase it differently. Your attachment is to doing God's will, not to the conclusions that you've already drawn in regard to that. That's what happened to me when we were working on incorporating Ananda Village as a California city. <clears throat> which is a project that went from 81 to 82. I wrote about it in my book about Kriyananda, so Swami Kriyananda as we've known him. And I worked on that, that project for 18 months. It was incredibly controversial. We had, by the time we finished, by the time we started having public hearings, every hearing was in a bigger venue until we were in the biggest ones in the county. There were 800 people at the last hearing. Everyone opposed the project except the people who were part of Ananda. It was incredibly contentious, and there were not 800 of us. And it was just unbelievable. And in the end, we were voted down. Only one of the commissioners voted for us. The other six all voted against us. It was very interesting. And it got national press because Rajneesh was taking over the town of Antelope, Oregon at the same time. And we just all got lumped together, and it was just a huge, big mess. And they were not supposed to take into account the, the subject of religion, but they allowed endless testimony on the subject of religion, even though we had a state attorney general decision that said if they denied our incorporation effort on the basis of religion, our rights were being violated. I mean, it was a big story. So at the end of it all, I and the other I, the two two other women working with me who were both lawyers, both attorneys, and me. I was the I was the main voice, but they were the law. We stood in front of all the reporters and told them that our rights had been violated, and we were going to appeal. And you know, we were just boom like that. And the next two days later, this 
crew come, television crew comes out from Sacramento to film us. And I'm, at that time we had no telephones and to get to Swami's house there was no paved road. You had to take the Sage's dirt road all around. So I met them all at the farmhouse and I drove with the reporters this, you know, up this four miles of rutted road and the whole time I'm telling them about our rights and what we're going to do. And we arrive at Swami's house and Swami immediately says, and Jyotish was there and a couple of others, and he, Swami says to the reporters, if you give me a, a few extra minutes, I'll give you a scoop, he said. I turned to Jyotish, I said, what? What scoop? And Jyotish said, you don't know. And I said, no, I don't know. So then Swami just starts talking in front of the TV cameras, and he starts immediately, because I'm listening to the words, in the second sentence, the whole project is over and we're in the past tense. Right, you know. So they immediately, after they film him, they put the camera right on me, and I say, why we're not going to go forward, like it really isn't a good idea. (laughs) Why would we appeal? This is just the right decision. And so I go all the way back down, telling them, you know, I wrote in the book that these people interview a lot of politicians and they didn't even notice, you know. (laughs) So I gave them the whole speech all the way down, and I said goodbye to them. I got borrowed somebody's car and went right back to Swami's house. What? (laughs) What? And he said, he he was so sweet, I'm so sorry, Asha, he said, but there was no way to reach you. (laughs) Which there wasn't, there was no telephone, there was just no way to reach me. I'm so sorry, but he looked very impish. I'm so sorry. (laughs) But then he said, because we had all, just the day before, we'd all decided we were going to go ahead and do this. And we'd had a meeting and we'd made all these decisions. He said, I was meditating this morning. And he had, he had, more, he had also more reason around this. Um, but he said he was meditating this morning, and that morning, and he asked Master what to do, and Master said, enough. And I said, I'm more involved in this than you are. Why didn't Master tell me? <laughs> he had a message why didn't I get it he said did you ask no no I didn't I presumed that if it was true yesterday it was true this morning you know because my attention had slipped from doing God's will to winning the incorporation you know, it's just, it was a very subtle difference, but Swami's attention was always on God's will, and mine had become defined by the form that had taken. And once you're defined by the form, you're, you're blocked. And then Swami came up with a lot of other good reasons. He came up with them afterwards about separation of church and state is a really good idea. And it, he said in this very lovely article he wrote, he said, uh, it was not that we would abuse that privilege. He said, but a person, that privilege could be abused, and it's something that should be protected. Then he wrote very, he talked really uh, prescient, is that the word, when you understand what's going to come? He wrote about what happens when religion gets involved in politics, essentially, and how confused it gets, and what a mess it becomes, and why it really wasn't a good idea. He said he felt that the, the committee made the decision for the wrong reasons, but they made the right decision. And, you know, everything that we thought was true was true. But in the end, he said he felt they were the instrument of a higher power and it wasn't really a good idea for Ananda as a religious community to also become a government entity. But for me, it was just like, oh yeah, that's right. You know, I only was doing this because 
we thought it was the right idea, and mainly I was going on Swami's feeling that it was the right thing for us to do. And it, it was the right effort to have made, even if we failed, much good came of it. But uh, the most important thing was, oh yeah, you have to always stop and ask, is this still my guidance? You know, and, you, and you do that without doubt. That's a tricky, it's a tricky thing. You don't do that. Like when we were wanting to establish our community here, and this was back in 1988, 89, would be 88 about when we asked Swami this, we said essentially, sh- he, he, Swami said to us, don't pray to Master, is this a good idea? He said, of course it's a good idea. He said, pray, help us to do this. Show us how you want this done. And in the incorporation, what had happened was, I mean, I have, I have, I've never articulated it just like this. But what we wanted was the freedom to develop according to our own intuition. And, we, and a municipality was a good idea because it's the only legal entity that, except a county that has control over land use. And we needed control over land use. It gets very complicated. But what we really wanted was not really to be a municipality. We wanted to be able to develop according to the way we felt we should develop. And that was, you know, and that was the, the fine point where, where that had ceased to be a, a good idea. And I had lost track of that. And I was, I was actually, I, I switched pretty quickly. In fact, I switched immediately as soon as Swami said that to me. And I laughed and realized, of course not, I didn't. So therefore, ha ha, there you have it. I was, okay, if you don't think it's good anymore, I'll take your word for it, that's fine. I mean, I'm happy to get out of this. This was a great thing to finish. But then a few days later, I said to Swami, you know, I really don't mind losing but it really annoys me that they won because the opposition had been very unpleasant. And I, I, what, I, what I was holding on to was this sort of resentment and this sort of sense of justice. You know, this I'm this old revolutionary and it bothered me that they got away with it. And so I held this kind of anger, annoyance with them. And then I got really sick. And I, this rarely happens to me, but I got a very high fever. And I got a very high fever for about four days. And it was sort of like all that anger just burned out of me. And when I came out of the fever, I didn't really care. We'd done a good thing. We'd done our best. If God didn't want it, what difference did it make? But that's how many, 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 many people on the spiritual path get misled, which is you have true intuition, and that true intuition takes a specific form, and then you think that the form it's taken is the intuition, and you don't bother to keep refreshing that question which is exactly what I had done. And it's such a delicate act because you cannot let that willingness to have your direction changed make you in any way less committed to it. So that's what the point is. Your commitment, one's commitment is to do what God is asking of you. And of course you give that 100% as long as it is. But the moment it ceases to be, then your commitment was never to the thing and you don't end up confused as I was. That's why Swami was able to hear it. And he'd, he wasn't concerned about our losing face or our being embarrassed. I mean, nothing like that made the slightest difference to him. I was very deeply touched by that by Mother Teresa of Calcutta in a documentary that I saw about her life many years ago. But uh, she was being interviewed by some rather worldly reporter who had really had very little sense of what she was really about. 
And so he was talking to her statistically about how many poor people she can help versus, you know, other organizations, how many they can help and how many the government can help. And, you know, you're not really making a dent and how many dying people are there on the street and you're doing 0.01% of them, you know, that kind of conversation. And, you know, you're not, you're not really that efficient in helping the poor. And Mother Teresa, I had the privilege of meeting her several times. She was an, an extremely no-nonsense person. It was like she was very busy and she did not have time for small talk. And uh, she just looked at him and she said, I'm not helping the poor. And he looked completely confused. He didn't know what to think. She said, I'm doing what Jesus asked me to do. And I mean, you felt that if Jesus gave her another instruction in that minute, she would have just walked out the door. And that was just, that always stayed with me. That was so powerful because she, she knew exactly what she was doing, which is why she could do it. That's what gave her the power to do it. If she thought she was helping the poor, all his statistics would have just overwhelmed her. And she even said that when she was, you know, being filmed, picking some maggot-infested dying man out of the gutter. You know, it, that's, it, it's tough work that those women, those nuns and monks do there. And she sort of, I'm not sure if someone asked her a question, but she just sort of looked up at the camera. She said, uh, people ask me how I can do this. She said, you you see this sort of maggot-infested man. She said, I see the face of Jesus. And then, of course, she could do it. A whole, just a whole different... I've often spoken of Swami Kriyananda that he was not disciplined to have the right attitude. He simply perceived another reality. And the right attitude was his spontaneous response to circumstances. Like, I'm sure if I was there dealing with those people whom I saw, I would have to discipline myself to be able to go into it. But she didn't because she had disciplined herself at a, at a level of consciousness so far, far back from that that by the time she was into the form of it, the form itself was something else. But that's how you stay open. So anyway, it's very important. <clears throat> now, for the rest of what he said, any questions or comments on any of that? For the rest of what he said, you know, this the whole question of monastic life is like so not part of our culture. And among the many reasons why monastic life is harder to hold right now is that people just don't have the foggiest idea what it's really about. People inside of it understand it perfectly. People outside of it just don't know what it is. Um, and a certain amount of, of disciplined commitment to the way of life that you're following just has to be there. If you, if you live too casually, it's very, it's very hard. So Master wanted to make sure that the energy of Mount Washington enabled people to live that life. You know, at Ananda, we, we've taken a different approach to it, and we're still sort of like working out you know, how to be a, com- a mixed community and still have the energy work for everyone. Um, I asked Swamiji once in some context, sort of uh, beyond the yogic teachings about sexuality and energy and the chakras and all the different things that you can talk about, I sort of asked him in a much more conversational way, like um, celibacy versus having a sexual, a monogamous sexual relationship. We're not going to talk about promiscuity. That's just a whole different question. Um, and he said, uh, the difficulty with celibacy, he put it in a humorous way, the dis- difficulty with celibacy, he said, is that 
you know, if it's the right discipline for you, it makes you feel lighter and lighter. If it's the wrong discipline, it makes you feel tighter and tighter, was the word he said. (laughs) But then I asked him on the other side of it, I said, what's wrong with a, a committed monogamous relationship? And he said, it, it, it forms the impression in the consciousness that desires are there to be satisfied. Which I thought was an extremely subtle answer. Because once you get into the thought that if I have a desire, I will fulfill it, then that becomes your, your whole attitude toward life. What I want is what I should have. And of course, what I want is too often what the ego wants rather than what will actually bring the soul freedom. And, and, and he didn't, he said, you know, for most people celibacy is not a good practice because it's just, it's, it's too hard. It's too difficult in this culture for those for whom it is correct and he urged it strongly on all those for whom it was correct regardless and was, was faithful to it himself. Um, it, you understand it from the inside and you know what you're doing. But I loved that, you know, just that thought that once desires get a hold of you and once you just get in the habit of just indulging them, where does it stop? And, and knowing, having a thought like that in your mind also tells you that if you're not living a celibate life, you can draw boundaries around yourself and not fall so much into that way of life. I mean, that was why I was asking him the question because I was about to get married. So what is, you know, what is this about? So you, you keep it, you keep a thought for him. And it also simply reinforces, well, all of that reinforces the egoic reality and it reinforces duality in your consciousness. He said that in another, another context. I mean, sexuality is based on, you know, attraction and fulfillment through an outside reality. So it just reinforces the idea that I am not complete, but something else completes me. Now, it has a divine purpose and there's all kinds of ways that you can elevate it but that's not the conversation at the moment but these are all things to remember it just reinforces the idea of being a separate entity and being an incomplete entity that requires some outside force to bring me peace and eventually but not necessarily now all of that has to be transcended but it has to be transcended at the right time and in the right place so, but then he said, I, w- I, I was thinking about that. That is why Buddhism failed in India. Corruption entered because the monks and nuns lived in too close association with one another. Well, you could think corruption meant celibacy itself, but Master, I mean, I think what he meant was that just the whole idea of God alone began to be confused. That's sort of what I think he must have meant. Because when the men and women start uh, mixing too closely and start drawing their energy from each other, then, then you're sort of you're working with another reality than the the single focus that's required. You know, Ananda's trying to build another model, which is having married couples and families and all of us sort of working together, but still holding that yogic ideal. And you know, we're decades into it, but it's definitely still a work in progress. And and everybody's trying to figure out how this all actually comes together in the right way. So we'll see. Any questions or comments or thoughts on that? Yes, Jan, could you take the microphone, please? Thank you. I'm a little... 
It should be on. You just have to get close to it. I'm a little confused. Yeah. Pardon me. Go right ahead. Is it? No, get close to it so we can hear it. I'm a little confused because I'm under the understanding that Buddhism was born in India. Right. But Master says the phrase, that's why Buddhism failed in India. But Buddhism, there was a certain point, and I can't remember which great sage it was, that Buddhism had become somewhat atheistic in nature. And so there was a, one of the great sages of India was born to restore Sanat and Dharma because Buddhism had Shankaracharya. Is that am I correct? Of course, you would always know. It's so nice having you in the class because you always know. Shankaracharya came and he pushed Buddhism a little bit out of India because it had wandered from Sanat and Dharma because it had become atheistic. Am I correct? Yeah, look at that. I have it right. <laughs> But by that point, it, needed, it was a divine corrective needed. Not, not because Buddha needed a corrective, but in the same way that Master came to America to help straighten out the teachings of Jesus. Jesus got it straight, but time passes. And so Master is saying here that one of the reasons that Buddhism fell from its elevated origin is because the monks and nuns were too close and corruption set in. I've never heard Swamiji say more about it than that. And I've, I've always, I always meant to ask him because I just would have loved to hear it a little bit more about it. So I'm guessing when I say anything. There you have it. So, and it was certainly an incentive for Swamiji to try to get another monastery. I mean, this is pretty freaky, what Master says. And if you were in charge, you would be working on it pretty strong. So, number 296. I was spending so much of my time, the Master said, giving interviews and lecturing that I began to worry that I might be forgetting God. What a thing for him to say. Isn't that interesting? And then I realized that in the very thought, I was remembering him. Isn't isn't that sweet? You know, I I hear, because people say this sort of thing to me, you know, people get so nervous about whether it's all, whether doing the right thing, whether there isn't a way they couldn't do it. But I myself spent decades of my life being so nervous. Am I doing the right thing? Could I be doing better? Am I failing in this way? And uh, uh, all that self-concern <laughs> replaced all thoughts of God. But this is, so he puts it very differently. It's just like, you know, am I doing your work? Am I not doing your work? But the, even that thought, I know uh, someone wrote to Swamiji once with, a, with a, a dilemma that was a dilemma where it was either she had to make this choice or she had to make this choice. There wasn't a, a, any line down the middle. It just had to be one or the other. And she wanted Swamiji to tell her which um, choice she should make. And Swami's answer was very interesting. He said, it doesn't really matter which choice you make. God is pleased that you're bringing him into the discussion. You know, that you're even trying to act according to God's will, and that's more important than we sometimes think. We sometimes think that it's the details where it's actually just the inclination and the intention that really matters. Because all of us are going to make enormous mistakes. It's just the given. And it's, it looms extremely large in our mental sky and very small in uh, God's love for us. You know, it's just very small. Okay. Number 297 is, Master saw people differently from the way most of us do. 
he didn't see merely their present bodies, outward expression, age, and sex. To the master, human life is a fleeting manifestation of an unending succession of lifetimes. That's really interesting. Sometimes when he looked at Jan Savage, a boy of nine who had come with his mother to Mount Washington, he would ruffle the child's hair playfully and comment, Jan is not a little boy, he's an old man. (laughs) I'm going to stop on that one for just a moment. You know, sometimes it's, it's just worth contemplating the simple fact of how arbitrary and how short-lived the name and the body that we're living in right now is. I mean, even if it lasts 70 or 80 years, you know, mine is now almost 71 years old, my body. And that feels, you know, when I was 20, that seemed like a really long time. And now it doesn't seem like a long time at all, which of course is such a cliche, but nonetheless, there it is. What can I say? It's a cliche because it feels so true. I was, Atma Jyoti and I went to New Zealand together a couple of years ago and we had such fun being little old ladies together. It was just really fun. It's the first time, she's a little more chronologically developed than I am, so she was training me in the art of being a little old lady. We had such a good time together and all the little old ladies came to us for counseling and it was really fun. You know, and it's just sort of like, well, you know, if you look at it from a certain perspective, that is actually what it is. And at the same time, you know, you, 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 you look at people who are in younger bodies, but, you know, when you were young, they were old, if you were, if you were running consecutively. So who's really young and who's really old? And who knows what um, state of realization a child has come from? The child could be, you know, infinitely more evolved than other people who've just been hanging around in human bodies longer. And all of it, Swami's words were, age is the most trivial of self-definitions. That was the phrase he used. And uh, there was a period of time when Swami was married um, in the mid-80s, and the woman he married was 30 years younger than him. And people noticed that. And Swami's response was really simple. Nobody my age is interested in what I'm interested in. (laughs) That's what he said. All my friends are younger. (laughs) He said, I've never been able to interest any of my peers in this. And it was just like, it wasn't something that he saw. At the end of his life, Narayani was his personal assistant, and Narayani was 24 when she met Swami, and he was 77, I think, some, something like that. Narayani is a very uh, attractive young woman. And so people saw that she was an attractive woman sometimes. And Swami once said to her, I, I don't think this made it into her book, but Swami once just said to her in this sort of way, people tell me you're an attractive woman, he said like that. <laughs> And then he sort of peered at her, you know, like this. Hmm, he said, I can see that you're not ugly, like that. (laughs) And then he said, I never see you that way. He said, I just feel your consciousness. And and that, you know, I just feel your consciousness. And what, what does that have to do with the age of the body that you're in? And it's such a, a, a freeing way to live inside our own bodies in terms of age and just regard, that is also one of the obstacles to not being celibate, is that somebody's always looking at you as your body. 
And you're always looking at someone else in terms of their body because that's what the whole thing is about. It's all a physical experience. So you're constantly affirming the fact that you have a body and that you, know, and if, that you have a gender even. Whereas if that affirmation is not always coming at you, it's much easier to put it out of your mind. I have a, a habit that I've followed for years and years, which is I covered most of the mirrors in my house. When I moved into the house I live in now, in the bathroom that I use, it had this, you know, this huge wall of mirrors. And every time you walk into the bathroom, there you are. You know, or you walk by some place and just there you are. And I've, I really found, I've really been doing this for many, many years. If you don't constantly see your reflection, you don't, you don't affirm as often that you're walking around in a physical body. You're just moving. And then when you do see it, and quite apart from vanity, which is a whole other issue, or, or, or insecurity or whatever other aspect you need, to just to not constantly be looking out and having it come back to you, just all these different ways, it, you just begin to feel more like a flow of energy. And a flow of energy is what we always are, with this tiny little bit of influence from gender and age and culture and so on, comparatively tiny. And now some people are profoundly and deeply identified. Swamiji, I remember him telling me this when I was in my 20s, when I not only had never traveled, I didn't even have a passport. I'd never been out of the country. He grew up in Europe and, you know, he just, from childhood, he'd been surrounded by multiple nationalities and languages. But he's, I remember him saying to me that you can, you can sit somewhere, and he said, long before people speak, even when there's no identifying physical characteristics, you can tell what country they're from. And I didn't believe him until I started traveling, and then there you are, and look, oh, there are the Germans, and, you know, there are the Dutch, and you just gradually figure out these are the Israelis, and that those people must be Swiss, and you're often right. But then Swami said, you, will, you meet people who, who are, as he put it, are strong enough in themselves that they are completely independent of the language and culture that they come from. And he said, and when you see them, you, you just can't tell. You absolutely can't tell what country they're from until they give it away with language. And I've always thought that was such an interesting um, aspiration, that even, even cultural biases and language biases, I mean, some, some uh, nationalities are more visible, but many are not. And nowadays, because everything's so mixed up, you really can't guess. And names are mixed up. Yeah. When India, you, you grow up knowing it. It's what you know. Yeah, it's what you know. But still, but then there are those who just aren't touched by it. I mean, that's like me saying you're from Colorado or Texas. Yeah. Well, the American is more of a melting pot. People move everywhere. India is more stratified. The conversation, which is off the record here, is that uh, our Indian friend can tell people's caste, context, family, and so on, just by the way they look and talk and speak. And in America, though, but somebody in Colorado could be easily be from Iran. I mean, you have no idea where they come from. <laughs> so you don't have any clues. And now everybody watches the same television shows and the same movies and shops in the same stores and you know everything is all the same so it's all switching every and yeah mm-hmm. 
we're just talking about how the fact that people speak so many different languages in India molds the mind. You know, I only speak English, so I'm only speaking from what I know, but I've heard Swami often say simply, it can't be said in that language because there's just no words for it because nobody ever wanted to say it. That's why we use Sanskrit words for spiritual things. English-speaking people aren't interested. (laughs) So we have to use guru, chakras, karma, shakti, kundalini. There's no English for it, but we just make those words English. And it it both is marvelous and then it's just terribly depressing. The word avatar, of course, has come to mean something completely awful that it doesn't really mean. But my favorite of this was being in a a Safeway store and seeing a little rack of uh, Harlequin romances. You know, when people used to buy books. Remember when people used to buy books? So it was Harlequin romances, which which were this whole series of, you know, torrid love stories in which nothing really very lurid ever actually happened and the good guys always won. They were, they were great little books, actually. And, uh, and so there's a picture on the back, of the, on the front of this one, and it's, it's this woman, you know, and she's looking as they look, like this. And, and there's some, some man who's handsome, and he's sort of embracing her like this, and she's sort of embracing him, but she's also gazing off over here, and then there's a shadowy other man over here, the whole thing on the cover. <laughs> And it says, was Margaret's karma to be with Edward? <laughs> or was her karma to be with Philip? I mean, this is on the cover of Harlequin Romance. And it, on one hand, I thought, well, great. You know, it's made it all the way into the mainstream. But, oh my God. <laughs> you know, like, really? I just didn't know whether to cheer or to weep. But there it was. And there it is. So where were we? Oh, we were talking about identifying with. So... If you start trying to be independent of the gender you're in, the age you are, the nationality, the culture, and the country that you're from, why not be independent of the incarnation you're in? Because there's nothing actual about this arbitrary birth-death line. That's what you have to really realize, because I remember Swami saying to me once, nothing happens when you die, is how he put it. And emphatically, he said it again, nothing happens he said, you just go on. You're just exactly as you were. I remember when Paula, my dear friend, was dying. And she was so brave and marvelous when she died. And she was talking to Swamiji on the, on the telephone. This was like hours before she left her body. She left her body consciously, so it was, it was quite a death. She's talking to him on the phone. She had a little bit of a, wasn't a southern accent, but she had kind of a childlike way of speaking. She was, she was childlike in the best sense. And she said, Swamiji, when I get to the astral world, I hope they have a job for me. You know I like to be busy. <laughs> he said, just like that. And it was just like, yeah. And she died and she just, she was, I could feel her all around us helping us all the time. I'm sure she was just given an assignment as soon as she got there and she just kept taking care of us. It's like you just continue as yourself. You just fall out of this body and you just keep going. Nothing happens. Nothing happens when you're born to the actual you, you see. It's all about how you define yourself. And, and if you define yourself in a way that is not conditioned by any of these temporary circumstances, how did Master say it? A fleeting manifestation. And also when we're suffering a lot, which we inevitably do, I think I said last week, Haridas used to say, when they make the 90-minute movie of my life, this is going to get about 15 seconds. <laughs> you know? 
if you take the whole of your incarnation and reduce it to a 90-minute movie, and that's a long movie for a biography. Yeah, the documentary, maybe it's going to be 120, but still, it's not going to be long. Think how long or short these incidents, and multiply that by millions of lifetimes. And just think how completely different your perspective is then. The little girl in our school, when Swami came here, Swamiji came here to see our school play, and uh, one of the little girls, she was, she was really intrigued by him. She was a very tuned-in child. She was about eight or nine. Because Swamiji looked old. You know, he was already elderly at that point. He looked elderly. But he didn't feel elderly. And she was just confused by him. And she, she kept sort of watching, walking around like this. And finally he was sitting about right there. And she finally just marched right up to him, put her face really close and said, How old are you anyway? Just like that. And he sort of folded his arms and looked at her and he said, Well, I'll put it this way. When you were an old woman, I was a little boy. And she sort of, ah, she said, and then she skipped off and she was totally satisfied. (laughs) But it was just the answer. And there was another little boy in the school. He was an Indian boy, as it were. And he looked, he was a small person, like that. But he had the face of a man who was, his face looked about 40. I mean, he just, he was just, had a man's consciousness. And at a certain point, Swami looked at him and said the same thing. You're not a little boy. You're a grown man. And the little boy just kind of nodded like that. <laughs> and it didn't, it didn't seem to him like an unusual thing to say. Because I think he was aware inside himself that he just had never... He wasn't going to bother to identify as a child. He was just going to stay as he always had been until he became that again. It was, it was great fun. Why don't we take a short break and then we'll, then we'll finish this one. Okay. So now we're going to go on with 297. Occasionally, we would mention to him something that we'd been experiencing. It might be anything at all, and he would say casually, that is because. Then give us some, perhaps trivial, piece of information about what we'd done or wanted or experienced in a former life. I know. <laughs> yeah, I, that's really quite fun, isn't it? So, do you have a, a particular point? You just love that. Well, he, let's see. Well, he did tell Swami lots of different things. Let me think for a second. But anyway, yeah. I, I, like he said, that is because some perhaps trivial piece of information about what we've done, what we've done in the past. See, the, the thing about the word karma entering through harlequin romance into the modern American psyche is that people will say something like, I think it was really karmic. And I'll say, well, like, what else could it have been? <laughs> you know? <laughs> It's like, of course it was your karma. How else could it have happened? And then you have this sort of, the word is assumed this, like only in special circumstances is it actually your karma for something to happen. But of course, everything is your karma. And I mean, the level of, of predetermined energy and inevitable uh, actions is just so enormous. The countries you visit, the languages you learn, the place that you're born, the things that you like, the people that you meet... Golly shucks, it's all karma because it's all the cause and effect momentum of the energy that you've set in motion. So master would perceive, oh, that's why you love persimmons, that's why you feel so at home in Spain, that's why you like this person, that's why you love the outdoors. And, um, 
I mean, the, Swami, didn't, he didn't say this to Swami, but I, I think he might have even, it may have been Diamata, but it was somebody. I, I personally, if there's a window in the room, contrary to the fact that I cover the mirrors, if there's a window in the room and it's not night, I, I just really can't stand to have the shades down or the curtains drawn. I just always have to open it up. And I always like to have just a little place where I can look out at the sky. And it seemed obvious to me, I must have been in dungeons, you know, really. But if I can just have that little piece of the sky, you know, I can stare out at the tiniest little bit with great contentment for very long periods of time. And I thought about that as, you know, it, it, the feeling of it is more than just liking to look outside. And in some context, Swami, I think Master said, perhaps to Daimata or someone, you know, well, that's because you were buried alive, you know, just like, or that you were incarcerated and that you just need that, that exit point. You know, people who are claustrophobic, all of these things, there can be lots of reasons for it. A woman friend of mine, she would always be taking a little bit of the roll and putting it in her purse, you know, taking a few almonds. <laughs> she was always carrying supplies. It was just always this feeling, and she just frankly admitted, you know, she'd been without food a lot. <laughs> and that just, you know, she just always had to have supplies. My friend Nidruva and I, um, when she lived in Palo Alto for seven years, this happened to be during the lawsuit, and she was the lawyer, and one of the lawyers, and almost, almost every day we would have lunch together, and we would talk about, I, was, I would work with her, and we would, or she would at least be able to talk to me because much of what she was doing was confidential and couldn't be discussed. And we would often have lunch together. And uh, she had this set of pottery dishes that were kind of a little bit oversized and a little heavy. They were, they were very nice, like handmade pottery. And she would usually cook and we'd just have rice and vegetables, something really plain. We'd always eat everything that she cooked, but we'd always eat it in two servings. We'd put half of it on our plate, and then after the plate was empty, we'd put more on our plate. We did this for years. And one day I was sitting there with these slightly oversized dishes, and she's a, a, a slender person. And all of a sudden, in my, just in my mind's eye, both of us got really small, you know, sort of like the table got higher and higher like this. And I saw us, seriously, both as orphans, and we never got seconds. And we were always hungry. And it was just like... It was such a joy to us to know there was more in the pot. Yeah, it was very poignant. It brought tears to my eyes in the moment. I, I just saw her and we clung to each other during that lifetime and we were always hungry. Isn't that something? I mean, just a trivial habit like that, but it was really deep in both of us. And I, I believe it was true. I mean, it was just a flash of intuition. But it, it, you know, anyway, so I mean, that kind of thing that you just develop these odd little habits. But if you think back, you can see why a person would develop such an odd habit and would have to have it be that way. So Master, I think Master wanted people also to get in the habit of just thinking that everything is part of this bigger flow and that which was unresolved in the past you're working with now or, you know, you don't have to be attached to it. It's just something that came from before and, you know, like that. There was a person who I actually believed poisoned me once and whenever I would eat, whenever I would eat in that person's company, I would always feel really, really sick. And sometimes I actually would have to throw up. 
And I really, I really felt that I felt, you know, we just, we were enemies in a past lifetime. And I mean, we got over it. But imagine if somebody had poisoned you and you had died and the next time they cooked for you, (laughs) you just like wouldn't be really eager to have dinner with them. Some part of you would recognize the soul because the body's, what is it? You might not know why, but you would just feel it. And Swami tells in the path about Jerry Torgerson and Ananda Moy, I think it was, who they just really disliked each other's intense antagonism. And Master just said, oh, that's because you were enemies in the past. You know, he just passed it off like that. You're not enemies in the present. You're both disciples of a great guru living in an ashram together. But you're enemies in the past, and it's still in your memory. So you see this person, and you can't remember why, but you don't like them. Famously, famous in Ananda history, and I put this story also in my book, there was a a love triangle at Ananda where there was a married couple, but the man was really in love with another woman. And after quite a few years, he finally said to Swami, this is not working. You know, I need to end this marriage and this is the woman I need to be with. And subsequently he has been and both of them have found their way and it's all worked out fine. But we all knew each other really well. And so <clears throat> when that couple separated and, and the, the, you know, the, the other woman in this, were all everybody was friends. So... They separated on this day, and then the next day, Swami's having, invites everybody over to dinner and invites the two women to cook dinner together for all the rest of us. Yeah, like this. And when he said, you know, and tell so-and-so and have them come over and cook dinner, and we're going to have, there were some other guests there too. I said, I'm so dumb. Sir, do you know what happened yesterday? <laughs> you know, <laughs> he looks at me like, I'm not stupid. And then he just says very casually, they're going to have to get over it sometime. They might as well get over it now. He said, otherwise, they will meet again in another lifetime and won't remember why they have such an antagonism for each other. Better that they face it right now while they still remember. And so the wife said, and I asked her about this later, she said, well, the fact that Swami thought I could do it, he said, she said, I just thought I would try. And she said, grace descended. And it was fine. She said, later I fell from that state of grace, but the fact that I had touched it so early in told me that it was, no, just told me, it assured me that it's possible. That's where I'm going. You know, and and so you, you can extrapolate from that. And that's why Master would say the things he said. This is the explanation. Just accept it and integrate it and go on from there. And sometimes it's trivial, but sometimes it's not. But it also tells you that every one of your habits has a background and don't take them so seriously. Are they still really true? You know, I I always, for a long time in my life, for a very long time in my life, I was extremely comfortable speaking and extremely nervous singing. Just really, really phobic about singing. And I mean, I really believe I was pulled out of the choir and shot for being off key or something like that. You know, I mean, it was just like way out of proportion. <laughs> and I don't sing all that well, but I, I realize I sing adequately. You know, and in the last five or six years, I'm perfectly comfortable just singing because I just sing like I sing. Like, what difference does it make? I'm not still, I'm not in the choir because I don't have time. But it's just like, you know, 
give me a subject. I don't care how many people are in the room. Give it to me a minute before I have to speak, and it, not, it's nothing to me. Ask me to sing a song? Oh, man, what a nightmare. But actually, I'll just finish this a little bit. When I was younger, two things about this. When I was younger, my only interest actually was theater. I had a great interest in theater, and it was the, it was the only thing before Ananda that ever actually interested me. And I, was, I wasn't spectacular, but I wasn't bad at it as an actor. But I always knew that I could never really take it seriously because I couldn't sing. And I somehow felt that if I was really going to accept it as a career, you have to be versatile enough to also be able to sing. And the fact that I couldn't sing meant that I couldn't pursue that career. And I knew that the fact that I couldn't sing and couldn't pursue that was a protection. I somehow knew it even then, that there was some danger in that for me. Much later, I learned, not much later, maybe ten years later, I learned about a past life in which I had been a very, very gifted singer. Part of the reason I have trouble singing is that I know what it's supposed to sound like and I know it doesn't sound like that. And I I finally realized that you can be a bad singer. You don't have to be a great singer. (laughs) But not being a great singer, I thought I couldn't sing at all. And now I'm just a mediocre singer and that's just fine. But because I was very good at it and very egoic and I did some very, very evil things. I had actual past life memories of very evil things I did. As, uh, and, and I lost the power to sing. It was just taken away from me. Thank you, God. I, I felt not as a punishment, but as a protection. But I don't need it anymore. So now, you know, I'm still not a great singer, but I can still sing. And every so often I sing really, really well, because it's still in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> But, but, you know, it's, it's like there's just so many things that, we're, that are going on all the time that are not small, and, we, and we, we need to push against them. Swamiji put me in the choir, and he really wanted me to sing when I was in my early 20s, and I was too dumb to realize what he was doing. If I had stepped into it when he told me, I think I could have wrapped up a big karmic cycle. But I didn't... I didn't... Um, have the courage. That's actually the right word. I didn't have the courage and I didn't realize the grace that would have come if I'd done it. Yeah, and you know, it's just, I have a list. It's not a long list, thank you. But I have a list of the ones where, whoa, I'd like to try that one again. The regrets. <laughs> yeah? Okay. So, yeah, I, I know there's a story about uh, Sarada Devi. And I, Master, Master going to Stonehenge, commenting about having lived there so many years before. I, I can't remember the con. Maybe it was Anandamoy Ma visiting some ancient site in India and just some ancient sign and commenting about other tourists and saying, oh, they were here 5,000 years ago. You know, they were here when it was built. They were involved in building it. Arjuna always feels that he helped to build the Kremlin. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why the Kremlin. Arjuna is one of the men. He lives in Italy, but he's a, he was a contractor all his life. When it's in Russia, it's a big building in Russia. He just he feels that he was part of that. I on the in my uh, one of my, my former life of my former life in this life when I was part of the leading the tours to India for those twenty years when we did that. 
And so I visited the Taj Mahal almost every one of the 12 times or so that we went. And I mean, it was, it's, a, it, it's a nifty tomb. It's really a nice place. <laughs> but I went there once with Arjuna and about five other men who are all builders. Michael Gornick, uh, Rick Bazan, Rich Bazan, and a few others, John Bain, uh, uh, Diva, a few, a few other men who are all builders. And it was such an experience to walk around that place because I, either they did build it or they understood how it was built. But even just their being there was so different because their just involvement in it was on a completely different level. I mean, I, I, can, I can hardly use a screwdriver. I was just like, it never crossed my mind. But it, was, it really made me again realize how much everything is karma. You know, how how your past lives and your present life too, but they were all builders and they all became builders. So who knows if they were there. Their relationship to it was proprietary in a completely different way than mine was. Fascinating. So all the things that we're inclined to do, they all come from experiences like that. All right. And then it detaches you. And you think, I just want to finish this. I don't want to be compelled. I don't want to be afraid of this anymore. I don't want to be bound by this. How many more times do I have to see this karma? Once is enough. And you you become a little more aggressive. I mean, fear is fear. You can't always just chase it away. I wasn't able to sing for a really long time. But eventually, if you persevere, we can break through all of it. That's the whole point. All right. Swami said, I'd been enjoying the calmness of the desert. One day I remarked to Master, I've always wanted to live alone like this. His reply was matter of fact. That's because you've done it before. Most of those who are with me have lived alone many times in the past. For a time I had been having stomach problems. The Master remarked one day, you had that trouble before, that's why. Swami talks also Swami had a great aversion to to vomiting and he had a lot of different stomach issues in his life but he his aversion to having to throw up was beyond normal and and he said at some point it had to do with having been killed by a sword in the stomach and just sort of having that memory of that whole experience and it just it it held connotations for him that were much stronger than would be for the average person. You know, that was the kind of just comment he would make. So you had had problems before, that's why. Swami said to Master, I have trouble going breathless in meditation. And Master said, that's because you used to talk a lot. (laughs) And then Master said, but you were happy then. (laughs) But that's what he meant by just light things that just, you have trouble going breathless. Well, you used to talk too much. And so now that's having to balance out. Yeah. But that also tells you, don't, there's no way you can push this just by your willpower. You know, it's like everything has to run its course. And you can be as, you know, angry about it and as ashamed or as guilty as you want, but there's a certain momentum. You have to, if you outlast the momentum with your eye on the goal, it will all straighten itself out. But being impatient about the momentum 
will not necessarily shorten it. You know, some things are subject to willpower, but a great deal is not. And anything that leads to agitation is just not worth it. I have trouble going breathless. Well, you were happy when you used to talk a lot. Okay. So now I change my attitude and want to go breathless, and it'll sort itself out in a while. You know, I still like to talk a lot. (laughs) So, you know, it's just where it is. When Norman left the ashram, the master commented, this is the first time in many lives that delusion has caught him. That is a poignant comment, isn't it? And another point, <clears throat> Swami talked about, you know, that it was, on a certain sense, it was dangerous to have to incarnate in the West with Master in Los Angeles. Because it was so materialistic and there was just so much indulgence. And someone told me, someone who's a very serious yogi in this lifetime, he said, and I have no reason to doubt that this isn't true, but I'm just taking his word for it. He says he remembers being a a sadhu in India and just saying to his guru, he said, I've got a lot of worldly desires and I'm going to go to the West next time where I can indulge some of them. (laughs) You know, this austere life in the Himalayas, it's just too much for me now. I'm going to go to the West where I can have women and I can drink and I can do all kinds of things. It's a person that none of you know. But he's a very serious sadhaka, very serious, and eventually he sort of basically went back to living like an old sadhu. But he, he, he just sort of went through a whole lot of stuff as a young man, and he just had, he says he remembers just telling his guru, I can't, I can't stick this for a while. I need a break. So he took a break, got it out of his system as far as he was concerned, and then went back to being an old sadhu. American man, you know, there you have it. And I I can't say it's not true. It fits his personality. Weird. But if we if we treat each other as if we as we would you know, I tell you that story and we just all shrug and laugh a little bit and think, Well, there it is. He you know, he worked it out, he got it. But when it's ourselves we totally freak out. Instead of just saying, It's just something I have to go through, a little karma I have to work out, when it's over I'll go back to being what I was or I'm on my way, and this is just a little blip on the road. See how much more at ease we would be? And so, as Swami said, the transgression is usually minor. The complex we build around it becomes a far bigger karmic obstacle than the original transgression. And that is so important to remember. So we goof up a little bit, then it's over. But if we worry about it, if we're guilty about it, if we're ashamed about it, if we're afraid it's going to come again, if we, you know, all of this, then we have this whole other unrelated issue that has actually no point of reference. It's just the story we told from some little incident over here or some major incident over here. But heavens, it happens to everybody. So the, the distinction between... Uh, uh, an unfortunate decision and a complex about the unfortunate decision. It's, it's really two entirely separate issues, complex being much more serious. So it's, it's weird how lighthearted you can become about <clears throat> your foibles and its progress and what progress it is to become lighthearted about your foibles. Well, it seemed like a good idea at the time. I inquired of the master shortly after I became a disciple. Sir, was I a yogi before? Oh, many times, he replied. (laughs) 
you've had you you have had to be to be living here now meaning to have the karma to incarnate personally with master you know you don't get those incarnations often it's another thing to think about people would say oh i wished i could have been with master when he was living but think about this how many times does an avatar incarnate i mean even we know some of master's lives compared to how many times we have to incarnate. So you have to realize that you have many incarnations in which your Satguru may not be embodied with you. And you, you have to either be guided by his disciples or guided inwardly. But that relationship can be going on for many incarnations, but he's just not always going to be there with you. This is partly in, quest- in answer to the question, well, I don't want to be a disciple of Master because I need a living guru. Brother Turiyananda, who is a monk at SRF, answered that question by saying this. He looked at the man and he said, Master is living, it's you who are dead. <laughs> Meaning, you're dead to his consciousness. And you wouldn't be any more alive to his consciousness if he were in the body because you're not receptive as a disciple. It's just very, again, one incarnation is just a fleeting moment. I think that we think we should all take that word fleeting moment and write it on our hands and look at it. Like fleeting moment. Yeah, it's a fleeting manifestation, even a fleeting manifestation. Just gone. Yeah. Isn't, it, isn't time something? Because we all feel so different about it, don't we? Yeah. It's all right. It's helpful, actually, to think about all of life as being a fleeting moment because then the fleeting moments are practically nothing. Are practically nothing. And see, this is where, this is how Swamiji lived. He was, and how Master lived. They were so committed. You know, Swamiji was so committed. He, he just, he put out full energy for everything he did. He never, he was never half present. He was always 100% present, 100% focused. He did not multitask. He just gave himself to whatever was in front of him, and he worked as much as he could possibly work to accomplish what he felt he was responsible to accomplish. But it, he lived in the energy of it. And because he was living in the energy, it was always the same energy. I mean, if, if you can understand what I mean, you're just back from the form. Because we're always conscious, we're Satchitananda. We're never unconscious. But we're, we're just living in the energy, not in the fleeting manifestation. It's the same energy, and it just, now I'll write books, now I'll write poetry, now I'll sing, now I'll raise a family, now I'll be married, now I'll be sick, now I'll die. But it's all the same energy. I said that, and I'll, I'll close with this. It's, it's almost Swamiji's uh, Moksha Day in just a few weeks, and... I, I remember ta- t- telling you all about when he died, I felt like he had always lived as the ocean of spirit and there was this tiny little trap door that he'd opened, which was the manifestation, the fleeting manifestation of Kriyananda. And when he literally took his, when he took his last breath and exhaled for the last time, in, in the most gentle way, that little trap door closed. And it looked like an enormous <coughs> thing from our side because we were so used to just relating to that. 
But for him, it was, it was like he'd come up from the surface of the ocean and just been looking around like that, and then he just went back under like that. I don't know if you've ever done scuba diving. I've done just a little bit of it. I, I could never get over the fact that you were underwater. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> but I remember cu- coming up, and you can do this when you're snorkeling too, that little point where the water's, the water's just right at eye level, and you can just go down and up and down and up like that. One time when I came up, it was raining, and, so, and all the, the water would look like diamonds when they hit like that. But it's just such a tiny difference because the world here <laughs> under the water is so immense and so unrelated and is just going on all the time. And then you go here and that world disappears and you're totally in this world. But for someone who is very sattvic, who's living in the whole ocean, they just peek up like that and then we're just relating to that. And then all they do is just sink back the tiniest bit. And why not, why not for us? No reason at all, except just that we're habituated to, to defining ourselves by that tiny little bit. But it's, it's just an energy pattern. That's the most amazing thing about it. It feels like a fixed reality, but it isn't. It's just an energy pattern. Just switch the energy pattern and it's just gone. You can have to get over it sometime. Why not now? You know, Swami said to us once, you're going to get it right in a few million years. Why waste all that time? <laughs> Why waste it? Don't bother. All right. So we read today 295, 96, and half of 297. And I am now not going to be teaching these classes until maybe June. And I don't know whether they're on the calendar for June or not. But anyway, are they? The last part of June for sure. I'll definitely be back by the end of June. But I don't know if I'm coming back sooner. So we'll take a little hiatus now. Okay.